Hello, hello everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me again in this uh, this exploration of consciousness and the nature of reality. And yeah, so welcome back. Today we're going to talk about Quilia computing. I mean, not the blog, <laughs> although of course I could talk at length about the blog and you know the the meaning behind it. But um, actually, we're going to talk about the concept of Quilia computing itself, because it is a legitimately new concept. I mean, as far as it goes in philosophy of mind, I do think that coining Quilia computing, referring to, okay, the computational properties of qualia is a very, yeah, potentially like meaningful, non-trivial and innovative thing to do in philosophy of mind. Now, before we go into Quilia computing as the subject of today's video, let's uh, go through the Quelia of the day, which today is um, Oh Savage. <laughs> oh Savage. It's kind of like a very classic, I believe, 1966 um, citrus aromatic fragrance. And uh, it's actually really great. I only smelled it recently. And I've got to say that I agree with Luca Turin in that it's a <clears throat> five out of five star fragrance. Now, I think it also classifies as a high entropy alloy of scent. And I recommend watching a video on high entropy alloys of experience to kind of like get a sense of what do I mean by a high entropy alloy. But just to kind of like briefly summarize it, it is essentially crafted to be exactly in the precise kind of uh, in between aromatic and citrus without either of them actually dominating. And it generates like something that is kind of in between that is uh, quite fascinating. Um, I mean, at, at a first glance, it's definitely a very bergamot like uh, scent, I would say. Yeah, I mean, definitely something like 40 to 50% of the scent is like bergamot or bergamot. Uh, but also there's lemon um, and uh, also neroli and rosemary. And to a lesser extent, there is a tiny bit of indole, which is essentially kind of like having the, um, I don't know, the cachet or the rapport of white flowers, but within a bergamot type of vibe. And uh, if I were to point out like one very cheap perfume that is somewhat similar uh, to Eau Sauvage, it would be this one, which is uh, lemon and ginger, actually. So like Eau Sauvage, interestingly, also has candied ginger um, facets. Anyway, I highly recommend it. It's um, pretty great. Uh, it's definitely a little bit pricey, but um, as a Quilia, uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, very much worth it. So, okay. Uh, let's get on to the topic of the day, which is Quilia computing. Okay, so we already have the concept of computing. Why do we need Quilia computing? Well, I would say because uh, part of the claim here is that the substrate actually matters. Okay, so in classical kind of like computing theory, we have this whole idea of the church Turing thesis, which essentially states that a function uh, in the natural numbers, although you can generalize it, um, is, is in a sense classified as computable if and only if it can be implemented with a Turing machine. And you hear a lot of people kind of invoke um, the church Turing thesis in the context of philosophy of mind. They're like, okay, we don't know exactly what the brain is doing, 
But because it's clearly some kind of computable function, uh, I mean, we're not talking about like uncomputable things. Uh, I mean, like, let's be realistic. Um, it must be on some level, um, something that we can model with a Turing machine. And now as far as kind of like in principle reasoning, I think these sort of holds, but we have to be really careful about not throwing the baby with the bathwater, <laughs> so to speak, because it essentially presupposes a whole ontology for what is kind of the, the, the basis of computation, what computation is for, what is it about? And if you kind of like dissect something like the church Turing thesis, you will come to understand that that notion, that conception of computation is one where essentially what you have is inputs and outputs. And a particular computation is a transformation of the input into the output. Now, reality is a little bit more complicated and interesting than that because you also have intermediate states um, in the transformation from input to output and a lot of interesting things can happen there. So um, in particular, uh, the implementation can actually give rise to particular computational speedups. So if you're using, for example, a particular quantum computing algorithm, in principle, you might be able to translate that into something that a Turing machine would be able to compute. However, you will not be able to do that with the same runtime complexity. In other words, the particular quantum substrate that you're actually utilizing for one of these algorithms <clears throat> is allowing you to solve the problem with a runtime complexity that is different than what you would get with a Turing machine. Now, of course, you can always compensate for this um, in a sense by scaling down as much as possible um, or yeah scaling down the speed of the simple computations and you know speeding up the the computation of the more complex ones such that you kind of like emulate the outward external behavior of something that would actually be implemented with a physical system that isn't you know a classical turing machine but uh, if you do that in a sense you are kind of like masking what is actually interesting about the system, which is what that it was allowing you to do those computational speedups. Now, in the context of consciousness and reality, <laughs> and like why consciousness was recruited by natural selection to perform computations, um, it's something that I would define perhaps as not only embodied cognition, and I guess I should add a footnote here, which is that <clears throat> Embodied cognition for a lot of people kind of like stands in for magic, <laughs> essentially. Um, it is very weird because you have kind of this uh, quadrant of like, okay, people who think that embodied cognition truly matters or, or is necessary. Um, no, like tr truly matters and is useful. And then you also have kind of whether you believe embodied cognition is actually necessary for consciousness. And at QRI, we would A, actually say that embodied cognition is really significant but B, it is not necessary <laughs> for consciousness. And that, you know, that quadrant is actually fairly rare. Usually you have people who will either not believe that embodied cognition matters at all. And they will say like, yeah, no, you know, a neural network uh, embedded in a classical computer, um, even if it's not interacting with the world, it could still in principle generate an experience. Um, or you also have the, the crowd who essentially believes that embodied cognition is really significant, but also they will say that it's necessary. But uh, we actually stand kind of like in, in the weird corner where we can say, for example, that no, actually you don't need 
input from the environment and you don't even need to move around in order to be conscious and actually just like dreaming is an example of that you don't actually require external input you don't require to be embodied in you know an action system that interacts in a feedback closed loop with the environment or something like that that's actually not necessary the nervous system is quite sufficient however <laughs> embodied cognition does happen and it is really powerful and the way in which we think it's actually very significant is through this concept of the resonant modes of the system which is actually yeah embodied and holistic properties of the entire system except that for the most part they're constrained to the nervous system and its harmonics <laughs> and uh you know in a way when you're hallucinating kind of a moving around in your dream yes that is holistic embodied uh computation but it's going on in your somatosensory cortex not actually in your arms and legs you see what i mean okay so that's a, a kind of like a, as an aside but uh, in a sense, a, a generalized or, or a uh, enriched conception of computing would, for example, also include this notion of intrinsic information in, you know, intrinsic states or physical states. We could maybe talk about this in terms of monodologic or like monadological network <laughs> or something like that, where actually you have like monads, which are like irreducible ontological objects that contain non-zero amounts of information and that they're like interacting with one another. Okay, so if you have something like that, some kind of like ability for reality to kind of like form these holes, so these irreducible holes that contain non-zero amount of information and they can interact with one another, yes, you can use that in order to implement an input-output algorithm, a particular function. Now it's going to be more interesting than just a Turing machine because in the process, you know, in between the input and the output, you actually went through, in a sense, embodied, you know, actual unitary states with non-zero amount of information or like more than one bit. Um, and from that point of view, actually the thing that might matter for consciousness is not the input-output function that is being computed, is actually the quality of the intrinsic information of the bound states in between. Okay, so that's a, an enriched conception of what computation can even be like. Okay, so then the question becomes, well, what kind of computational speedups or benefits would you actually have by, you know, using a kind of like monadological networking computing? Well, actually quite a lot. There's a lot of possibilities here. And uh, I covered quite a bit of it on the video called Solving the Phenomenal Binding Problem, where essentially I argued that the actual unity of experience gives you the possibility of, in an extremely fast and parallel fashion, compute the harmonic resonant modes of what is topologically segmented out. And that itself can be computationally relevant. So that is one example of how kind of this um, monodological networking computing can actually be beneficial. But there's really like a lot more. And kind of like taking a step back and like figuring out, okay, like what do the nervous system actually uses consciousness for? Well, I will have to, in a sense, ask you to redefine your very conception of intelligence. So like, what is intelligence? And like, what kind of problem is consciousness solving for which intelligence, genuine intelligence is required? And uh, here is like an interesting kind of like perspective from uh, David Pierce uh, in his essay called 
the bio-intelligence explosion, which I highly recommend reading. But I mean, basically one of the main overarching claims that he makes is that intelligence is actually a function of one's whole phenomenal world simulation and not only a property of kind of the sequential logical linguistic serial processing that is um, emulated like that is on running on top of this massively parallel world simulation that uh, is being implemented in the nervous system so it's very crazy to think about this but like the actual way in which you render objects the things around you the shapes the colors the the vibe uh the mood in which you are all of those things are contributing to your info the information processing that your nervous system is actually doing like being in a particular mood is actually very computationally significant it's not an epiphenomenon is is not trivial i mean there's a reason why it was selected by natural selection why we are in particular moods that usually they are like adaptive to the particular situations in which we are which is not not always the case but like at least from an evolutionary standpoint that's why it was recruited so there's actually quite a bit of ways in which we can enrich our conception of intelligence to go beyond just kind of you know serial logical linguistic reasoning which is you know the classic conception of intelligence that you know it's uh, obviously really important obviously correlated with a lot of really important things but is by no means the whole account and actually if you just have that account of intelligence you will be deeply misled about like what is it that the nervous system can do okay so there's several things like number one intelligence requires the capacity for binding both local binding and global binding essentially it requires the ability to generate a world simulation where features are actually properly bound to each other such that like you know a particular color belongs to the shape uh, from which it, 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 it's associated in, in, in the environment and you don't perceive like disembodied colors, for example. So that is like binding and it's really important. Local binding is features put together for a unified phenomenal object, whereas global binding is that the features be belong to the same experience, whether or not they're like, in, you know, immediately connected to a, to a phenomenal object. And but either way, I mean, like binding is both philosophically very puzzling um, and computationally very significant. So non-psychotic binding is a key ingredient of intelligence. But then you also have uh, kind of like self, the self as a coordinating mechanism, something that allows you to, in a sense, model uh, what is happening as happening to somebody over time with agency and the capacity to kind of uh, organize its... Um, contractions and its uh you know expansions in such a way that it navigates the virtual environment so that's uh, you know another part and you could be really good at you know non-psychotic binding but actually lack of an adaptive sense of self for example with uh, schizophrenia or perhaps like some particular yeah i don't know psychedelic psychosis or, or something something like that um then the, the third one is perspective taking capacity i mean like that's a, a very intrinsically you know challenging uh problem of how do you in a sense like simulate what others are experiencing and what they are believing that you are experiencing and so on and so forth and or you know in the case of somebody like shakespeare like six order intentionality what does he think that she believes that he wants that uh she 
you know, dislikes. So like that kind of like ability to reason, okay, that's also like something upon which um, it, it's predicated upon which the properties of reportal simulation and which, you know, is integral to intelligence. Um, then also we need a metric to distinguish the trivial from the significant. And, you know, you can, we can talk about like, okay, like somebody like Kim Peek uh, has tremendous computational power when it comes to, you know, calendrical uh, questions uh, or arithmetic and things like that. But it's not the same as a, you know, a Perelman, somebody who, who can prove the Raymond conjecture and like, okay, like that requires some kind of understanding to be able to distinguish the trivial from this, from the significant. And uh, that's not only, you know, just kind of like an IQ type of skill, it requires kind of like some deep heuristics and ultimately requires some kind of like philosophical insight into what matters in reality. So that for sure is yeah another key component of intelligence. Um, then you also need the ability to navigate and utilize different states of consciousness. And like, you know, you could have somebody who's really good at math, um, but in a particular bad mood, it destroys his or her life, right? So in that case, like that particular person, would not be very intelligent um, when it comes to navigating particular mood states of consciousness. I mean, let alone, I don't know, DMT or, or something like that, which is kind of, yeah, these extreme, extreme changes in the, the state of consciousness and the, the computational properties that that entails. So being able to navigate that, it's uh, quite, you know, importantly, something that intelligence is to some extent related, uh, to which is related. Um, and for sure, I, I suspect that, yeah, I mean, the super intelligences in the future will start by looking more like, you know, a super Shulian Academy <laughs> as opposed to, I don't know, a super Watson or so something like that, uh, or a super GPT-3. Um, and uh, yeah, finally, like number six, it is, yeah, kind of like the serial logical linguistic reasoning, which, yeah, it's essential. It's uh, obviously key in order to create, you know, digital computers in order to reason philosophically and for sure in order to kind of like do altruism at scale, um, kind of like this systematizing type of intelligence. But it's important to recognize that that's just one element of a lot of different other kinds of intelligence that are really non-trivial. I mean, like one of the things that David Pierce points out is that um, AI researchers may confuse the agreeable, you know, may confuse uh, empathy and the perspective taking capacity of people with just the personality factor of agreeableness. Whereas like, no, actually <laughs> high levels of agreeableness are, you know, computationally very demanding, like actually, you know, doing perspective taking properly. It's very, very computationally demanding. It's not a, just a personality trait. So, you know, that's kind of like something that it's easy to get really wrong. Um, and yeah, it's a, a, a non-solved problem as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so that is, okay, we enriched our conception of computation. We also enrich our conception of intelligence. Okay, so what's next? Well, what is next is I will make the overall kind of a overarching claim or observation that to a large extent, intelligence is all about choosing the right self-organizing principle that will solve the problem for you. And uh, there's like a wonderful, wonderful uh, recent paper. I'll add a link in the description 
about um, essentially how like if you tangle uh, a knot um, or like with a cord or something um, and you put it in a graphics engine and you kind of like introduce this rule where the surfaces are repelling each other as much as possible you can put in something that is like very in a very gnarly knot and on its very own will unentangle it will disentangle and it will become kind of like just the cord um, so is that intelligent or not well the intelligence there is to in a sense like select the right self-organizing principle in this case repulsion between surfaces that will in a sense as an emergent effect of letting it run in a massively parallel fashion solve the problem for you so uh, i would claim that actually this is like much more similar to what we do on a daily basis than let's say programming a Turing machine <laughs> or something of the sort so the claim is that okay we have yes we do have like some specialized hardware to some extent but also we have the capacity to in a sense like program self-organizing principles that then will solve the problem for us and uh, you know there's a lot of examples of this and the the thing that is actually tricky the thing that is in a sense uh, the, the meta intelligence behind this is the capacity to train new self-organizing principles to solve new problems. And that I would say is yeah, completely fascinating property of our nervous system that uh, we, we're capable to, in a sense, like reprogram it so that it instantiates new self-organizing principles. Okay, so um, another, uh, um, okay, yeah, let, let, let's, uh, let's say that. Now, uh, one example of kind of like a self-organizing principle that is all over the place, <laughs> and uh, we've talked about it, it's uh, annealing. And annealing, I mean, really is that because you're in a sense like the, the problem that you're solving is, for example, how do you get uh, atoms to be aligned with one another in a lattice uh, without having to individually go through each atom and kind of like oriented in a particular way so that you know everything becomes a checkerboard pattern or everything is like properly aligned like you don't want to do that manually is there a way in which you can kind of like do something to the system such that on its own it will find that configuration and the answer is yes you can heat it up at a certain schedule and then let it cool in such a way that you get kind of uh, islands of constraint satisfaction, like bundles uh, of atoms that in a sense do satisfy the, the constraint of being aligned with each other. And then they form nucleation points, then in a sense propagate and then they negotiate between each other. And you know, in some cases, kind of like a, a, an annealing cycle that heats up and cools down and heats up and cools down and heats up uh, so that like it goes through kind of like several stages might actually work really well because you will have like the islands of coherence kind of congealing and crystallizing and then you might need to kind of like reheat it a little bit so that they kind of jiggle and and then you they crystallize as, a, as an entirety the entire you know scope of the crystal lattice actually becomes um well organized so um in this case like choosing the right annealing schedule would be kind of like the intelligent the, the, the thing that requires kind of intelligence here, um, whereas like the actual organization is, you know, something that happens at a physical level, like you're kind of like recruiting the massively parallel nature of the universe to solve the computational problem for you. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's some really exciting, you know, new kind of uh, applications in computing 
that are kind of like doing these. So in particular, there's like some um, optics research in Caltech. I'll um, share a link in the description as well, where, I mean, essentially what they're doing is uh, using optics to solve what's called the icing problem, which is, I mean, it's very similar to kind of like the, the annealing problem of like atoms wanting to be aligned with their environment, except that here is a much more general situation where essentially you have like nodes in a network. It doesn't have to be a lattice. It could be a arbitrary network where each of the atoms is trying to in a sense like be in the same alignment as the nodes is connected to uh, or the opposite like that there's like several formulations but the point is that in a sense the more alignment you have the lower the energy of the entire network is and uh you can if you do this with optics you can actually explore um, states of superposition. You can explore many possibilities at once, which drastically accelerates the, you know, the runtime complexity of the algorithm. And so you end up having something that is at a physical level, you know, recruiting the massively parallel nature of the universe in order to find the local minima of energy or the global minima of energy for you. And, uh, and it's doing that in a way that it's faster than classical computing. So, when you have something like that, then actually the problem becomes not how do I solve this constraint satisfaction problem? Actually, the problem becomes how do I take the problem that I have and then cast it as an icing problem? Because then you have the specialized hardware and the physical system, you know, the self-organizing principles that will solve the icing problem for you. So actually, yeah, the, the, the non-trivial problem here becomes how do you map your problem into an icing problem. And I think like these will, you know, show up all over the place when it comes to, you know, human intelligence, that in a sense, we have kind of this range of possible self-organizing principles that we're really good at instantiating. And then actually the thing that is learned, the thing that is really tricky um, is figuring out how to translate the problem that you have into a format that one of these self-organizing principles can solve for you. And uh, I think like we will, I mean, ultimately be hashing out one after another, kind of like one, you know, how we solve this particular social cognition problem, how we solve this perceptual problem, how we solve this, you know, homeostasis problem. And I suspect in all of those scenarios, we will find some self-organizing principle that is actually doing the computational legwork for you. And I mean, isn't it fascinating? Like what it actually feels like to solve a very difficult problem. I mean, there's definitely kind of an embodied component, but it feels kind of like this massively parallel thing that you're in some implicit way exploring a massive space in a very efficient way um, without explicitly kind of like laying out all the possibilities. Um, you do it in this, yeah, very crazy, massively parallel way. Okay, so now let's go into some things that actually suggest that you know, our consciousness is doing something like this. And well, you can actually just pick up a book on visual illusions and you will notice in a sense, tons and tons of artifacts of your visual system. And what they demonstrate is that you have this massively parallel process that is trying to find an equilibrium where essentially, yeah, the, the fixed points of the system are in a sense like adaptive representations of the environment. So let's just see one example. I highly recommend, like, if you're going to take a substance, you know, a crazy substance like DMT or 
or ketamine or something. Um, I, and not that you should, or I'm not recommending that you do, but if you are going to do it, I do recommend that you have a visual illusions book right next to you so that you can see kind of like extreme examples of these kind of um, holistic field behavior uh, and self-organizing principles happen in your visual field as you explore the, the visual illusion. Um, and, uh, you know, this is also noted by quite a few neuroscientists, a really excellent kind of new source of insights um, is in the space of like Stephen Lehar and Salen Atasoy, I would say. I, I highly recommend is uh, Stephen Grosberg. And uh, essentially, he also kind of has this notion of resonance, except this, you know, it's not linear resonance. It's a more generalized notion of resonance. Um, and I'll definitely make a video specifically about it. But uh, one of the many things that he points out is that uh, there's a lot of like visual illusions, for example, the Canisa illusion, that strongly suggests that we are doing some kind of what might be described as a feeling in process. That in a sense, all of the edges, uh, this is also Stephen Lehar uh, realized these, like all of the edges in the Canis illusion, you can think of them as in a sense, um, kind of like sending a wave of energy, <laughs> kind of like radar. And where all of the waves of energy collide, that's actually a symmetry point. It's a point where uh, it's very close to a lot of um, reflections in multiple dimensions. So essentially, when you have something like that, the waves of energy propagate back and they quote-unquote reify an object. So the Canis illusion um, that you see these like square, you hallucinate the square with even if its boundaries. Yes, that is kind of an equilibrium point of all of these waves of energy trying to expand as much as possible and reifying the symmetries. Uh, apologies if this, yeah, sounds like uh, nonsense. It's something that uh, we actually probably would have to go through uh, much more slowly to, to really absorb. But here's another one, the watercolor illusion. I don't know if you guys can uh, see it very well, but I mean, essentially you have this fascinating effect where by the gradient of the boundary, like in what direction you have a, a gradient of color, you will determine whether the entire column looks blue or not, or more blue, you know, kind of like what is the, the, the bluish uh, 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 region versus the less blue region. And there's a lot of other kind of illusions like that. Um, and uh, that actually suggests quite strongly. And I mean, this is crazy, but I think I think I think it's the case. I think it's the case. It's really, really puzzling, really crazy, but I think it's the case. And that is that uh, we actually undergo a feeling in process where every region in your visual field is painted uh, with something that is kind of like watercolor and the paint is trying to expand and expand and expand. And the reason it doesn't, you know, expand over the entirety of your visual field is actually because there is other colors that are also trying to expand that essentially um, make those waves of colored energy as it were collide with one another and form boundaries so in this in this world you actually um all of the boundaries are sort of illusory <laughs> because all of the boundaries are actually this equilibrium between forces uh, I, I talked about in, in in the video on cognitive sovereignty about how the ocean the the, the a, a beach is actually a, a, a very beautiful because it's a, a um equilibrium 
of a lot of different forces sim simultaneously. Um, and the visual field too. Your visual field in a sober state is kind of like a beach. I mean, it, it essentially it's a lot of forces are in equilibrium and that equilibrium is in this massively parallel fashion, finding um, an adaptive representation. Uh, and, you know, on psychedelics, it's kind of like you have this uh, hurricane or something that, yeah, it can blow out all of the sand, you know, <laughs> like it will mess with the equilibrium significantly. And then you can have like a lot of crazy things happen, but you will still see in every point in time, essentially, that whatever you do happen to experience is whatever equilibrium of forces um, is currently realized. Uh, here's another example of of, uh, of this, like the gradient, like this gives you the illusion that the interior of this shape is yellow. And uh, the answer is that it's not, it's actually not yellow at all. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a visual illusion. But this suggests uh, essentially that you have like waves of, you know, something like yellow energy. Uh, that sounds so bad, but it's more or less the case, at least perceptually, that are propagating and bouncing off of each other and in the equilibrium, they essentially paint the objects around us. Okay, so that's a, that's a very concrete case. But, uh, I mean, there's like many, many other things going on in the visual field. I mean, this is just uh, colors and edges um, that demonstrates this. Um, there's also this illusion called neon spread. Uh, you can look it up online. Um, you know, very efficient symmetry detection. I mean, the fact that on psychedelics, essentially things that are quasi-symmetrical, they click into symmetry. Okay, like when you have a wallpaper symmetry group in your visual field, it will be in this crazy state of resonance and holistic behavior. Like the whole thing acts as a unit. Okay, like that is the signature as well of kind of these like massively parallel holistic behavior because it is a resonant mode and a superposition of resonant modes is such that it gives rise to a particular wallpaper symmetry group. And the same happens also with space groups in 3D. If you take enough DMT to go to what we call the crystal worlds, your space will be tessellated with, you know, 3D symmetrical structures. And those actually will behave very much like how Stephen Lehar describes it, which is with these shock wave propagation algorithm, where essentially the boundaries of the symmetrical shape will be sending what feels like these waves of energy that collide against each other and, uh, and they form uh, stable attractors. And those stable attractors by design actually tend to be extremely symmetrical along several dimensions simultaneously. Um, yeah, so that's uh, also like, yeah, an example of a, of a field behavior in, in, uh, in, in visual experience and kind of this massively parallel process. Um, there's also other things that suggest kind of um, uh, that we use self-organizing principles for computation. I mean, another very stark example is uh, annealing effects. Um, I mean, very generically uh, on psychedelics, they are kind of like broad spectrum energy enhancers. Um, you will experience periods during a psychedelic state where in a sense, you will feel that your energy body is resonating in a particular way where the resonant modes will start to interlock with one another. And if you kind of like follow that gradient, uh, we could talk about, for example, some sort of like um, oscillatory entropy. I mean, this is kind of like inspired by the concept of 
you know, harmonic entropy. It's a concept in music theory. I highly recommend looking into it as well. But yeah, I mean, essentially how pleasant a particular chord uh, sounds like uh, can be computed uh, and approximated essentially by how complex would a superposition of harmonic resonant modes be in order to generate the spectrum that you're hearing. Um, and essentially like more simple chords tend to sound better. Uh, and it's for this reason, because you can kind of generate that sound with few harmonic resonant modes. Okay, so likewise on a psychedelic, um, when you're getting to kind of like these very, very mystical states, they tend to be very low in information content. Um, for example, like empty space or the feeling of everything converging into one point and things like that. Um, so those would be low in oscillatory entropy. And uh, the fact that they happen, where they happen, and in the way that they happen, <laughs> strongly suggests a crazy annealing effect where like maybe in the, the second hour of your LSD trip or something like that, things are kind of like still very chaotic, but then if you meditate on it and you try to kind of like find the peace within as it were, um, yeah, maybe by the, you know, third or fourth hour, you can kind of enter into these like spaces that are like uh, resonating in synchrony. And those would be like much simpler. And they tend to be also much higher in valence, much more blissful, um, more mystical, more loving and so on. Um, and generally speaking, they tend to be very simple. Uh, and also that actually somehow it's healing for reasons that uh, I'm not going to go into this time. You, if, if you're curious about it, you can look up uh, healing trauma with neural annealing, which is a presentation I gave um, at the Oxford Science of Psychedelics Club. Uh, it's uh, online. You can find it. Uh, okay, so like crazy annealing effects also suggests that, you know, a lot of what's going on in our experience is actually the result of these self-organizing principles, you know, running in a massively parallel hardware um, and how they interact with one another. Now, I'll also mention that there is these crazy things that can happen on meditation. For example, nimitas. And nimitas are essentially when there's a threshold of concentration. Um, and you can look up Buddhist annealing, uh, a video I made about like, okay, how do we quantify concentration? What does concentration even mean in the context of meditation? Um, I go much deeper into it, but you know, a, a very, very broad picture is that concentration is sort of like a coefficient of how many of your resonant modes are either in a state of harmony, could be, for example, different scales, um, but they're like interlocking with each other, resonance and synchrony. So when you have those, um, the more of your harmonic resonant modes are either in resonance, harmony or synchrony. Uh, there's also this generalized concept called coherence in neuroscience, which actually captures um, these in a much more general way. So whenever you have that, when you, whenever a lot of your resonant modes are in a state of coherence, that tends to be a highly concentrated state. So when all of your resonant modes are in a sense um, interlocking such that your attention gets concentrated in the center and you, it doesn't move from the center, okay, like that would be a highly concentrated state of consciousness. But there's also you know, highly concentrated states of consciousness where you actually have broad attention. So it is not the case that to be highly concentrated, you need to, in a sense, 
in a sense like focus in a narrow spatial space in a spatial uh, scope because the spatial scope could actually be very large could it be you know the the sphere of infinite space for example a boundless space and still be in a highly concentrated state so uh, when you cross a certain you know level of concentration you start experiencing this thing that are, is called nimitas where many of them are described as like luminous so essentially you can feel like this very very bright light like at the top of your visual field you don't necessarily look at it directly but it's kind of like influencing your visual field almost as if there was like a light behind that you you weren't like perceiving directly but it's like shining into your visual field and somehow like making the rest of your energy body coherent with it so that's one example of a nimitta but there's also uh, a modal nimittas so kind of like the feeling of like very strong gravity in one particular direction now all of those things um, can be interpreted as essentially um, field behavior especially we have kind of like an electromagnetic theory of consciousness in some you know formulations we could actually talk about the way the attention flows as literally following for example the magnetic field lines and that in a sense when you're shifting your attention from one place to another you're kind of like shifting the magnetic field lines of your consciousness so that it gets directed in a different way now uh, this kind of like connects with uh, an empirical description of in a sense how you do world building with your imagination <laughs> and, and the way in which you do this is a sense by generating clusters of you know uh, resonant representations interlocking with one another um, and this gives rise to this concept. Um, I, I'm throwing a lot at you, but uh, yeah, hopefully some of you can take it, which is the concept of an oscillatory complement. So if you are like fully absorbed into a particular shape, let's say a hexagon, the crazy thing is that, you know, if you're fully absorbed into a hexagon, it's not that you actually become a hexagon. You know, it's not that your consciousness is shaped like a hexagon. It's actually something a little bit crazier than that. Your consciousness has become the oscillatory complement of a hexagon, meaning that it resonates with a hexagon. Uh, and actually, the entirety of your experience will consist of something that is shaped like a hexagon, which is a tiny component of the experience, and the rest of the experience, which is the oscillatory complement of the hexagon. And that is what you're becoming. And that is a thing that is actually very low in oscillatory entropy. <laughs> um, okay. And uh, also importantly, there are two things that your nervous system is constantly trying to do. I mean, this is kind of like from, you know, free energy principle from Carl Friston, but we are blending it with connectome specific harmonic waves like cell and atosoy, and then adding, for example, neural annealing and the symmetry theory of valence to actually create a unified paradigm here. Um, so what I mean by this is, okay, the, the free energy principle will generally indicate that um, an organism needs to simultaneously A, minimize prediction errors, while B, minimizing the model complexity that it has about its environment. I mean, you could have like in principle a huge lookup table <laughs> um, that predicts every possible, you know, new sequence of inputs as a function of like sequence of past inputs 
but it's you know computationally intractable and it's impossible to in a sense like actually get all of that um trained up you know you you would need an infinite amount of computation or like a very large amount of computation so in practice you actually require a balance between how complex your model is internally and you know how good your prediction of the environment are using that model and uh the claim here that we make at qri is that actually what the nervous system is truly trying to minimize is dissonance is dissonance between its harmonic modes and what does that look like well that looks like harmonic modes that are similar to each other they're not actually capable of interlocking so they generate these like strong beat patterns which in a sense um create these very sharp derivatives these very sharp transitions which in a sense is a risk factor for strain and strain is the thing that is actually you know the thing that actually feels unpleasant <laughs> you're kind of this field and whenever that field is actually experiencing strain um that feels unpleasant um so if you want to minimize the strain you got to minimize the risk factors for strain uh which is stress for the most part and if you want to minimize stress you will want the harmonic modes to actually interlock with one another so that the energy that one harmonic has can be passed on seamlessly to the other one without in a sense friction or stress in between and you know as a consequence of this um all that you ever actually are you know trying to do from the point of view of aliens is minimize the amount of dissonance that you're experiencing and there's like two key ways in which dissonance arises like first of all you have bad predictions why because that would be a um a lack of coherence between one layer of the perceptual system and the surrounding one in a sense like you have a nested hierarchy of layers um and each layer is trying to predict the one around it um so a prediction error is kind of dissonance between one layer and its surrounding ones that's like when yeah i mean an abstract model is not actually able to predict very well the next input uh of the more concrete kind of like neural layer wow. which is connected to the environment second though you're also trying to minimize model complexity because very complex models can have a lot of moving parts which can actually grind on each other <laughs> or you can you know look at it projectively in a way like when you have like a very complex model and you project it from several points of view uh in a sense like different projections can actually generate internal dissonance and that's something that you're trying to minimize as well so in practice the thing that minimizes the total amount of dissonance is going to be actually something that satisfies a lot of kind of machine learning properties desirable machine learning properties or statistical properties which is it will balance out accuracy of predictions together with internal model complexity now the reason i say all of this is that i think that kind of like the non trivial insight here is that our model of the world is something that we are constantly updating i mean this like internal simulation that we have of the environment who we are where we are what we're doing and so on is something that yeah we're constantly refreshing and every time we refresh it we're trying to capture what is essential of it while simplifying it making it more elegant making it more compressible you know more generalized um and uh that's like just ongoing all the time 
And uh, I would actually equate it with something like nonlinearities in a nonlinear optical system where, yeah, actually, you know, the thing that you're experiencing is the standing wave pattern of the nonlinearities of the harmonic modes of your nervous system. And you're kind of like keeping that alive. Like whenever you, you are in a particular situation, you're keeping alive that particular set of nonlinearities and you're updating them, constantly updating them. And uh, in, in a way, you know, like different cognitive styles can be thought of as like, okay, different styles of updating that internal nonlinearity and what that entails. Um, where, yeah, I mean, for some people, there's like a much bigger dissonance cost to certain kinds of moral complexity than others. Or, you know, in the most extreme case, you have people who have kind of like specialized hardware <laughs> versus people who have kind of like, you might think of it as like CPUs, um, where in the one hand, you know, they may kind of like have very natively self-organizing principles that are really excellent at something, for example, like social cognition, where like somebody else might actually not have them. And need to kind of like emulate that behavior uh, in a much more sequence, sequential, serial, and uh, uh, kind of like digital, uh, discrete fashion. Um, so that's another, yeah, very key difference. And um, in that case, you will have a little bit of kind of like buffering effects where the model complexity may be too high um, relative to its prediction error rate. Um, and in that sense, there's both artifacts from people who have kind of like a more native uh, self-organizing principle to solve a problem versus people who run it in a sequential fashion. There's pros and cons, but okay, sorry, I'm getting out of a, uh, yeah, world building. Okay, so when we update our internal world simulation, uh, I want you to notice, you know, next time you're tripping or next time you're meditating, how in a sense, in order to keep, for example, hallucinating a sphere, in your visual field with your eyes closed, you need to, in a sense, hit it with what feels like some kind of like sensing wave, okay? Uh, you might describe it as like a wave of energy. Uh, you might describe it as kind of like ethereal sensing or something like that. I mean, it feels kind of like very, very mysterious, but I mean, I think like this is the holistic field behavior of, of your experience. Ultimately, it will be something we can scientifically understand. But um, to give you a sense of this, it feels like ray marching in, uh, you know, in graphics that essentially you have all of these rays of light that are kind of like being propagated and they need to hit the sphere in order to energize it. And you need to do it from many points of view, from many directions, so that you narrow down the actual position of the, of, of, of the, of the sphere. You see, actually, if you hit it only from a certain point of view, you may actually narrow down its you know, position or its momentum <laughs> from a certain direction, but it, you may actually maintain a lot of uncertainty across other axes. So um, actually hitting it from as many points of view at once or in short sequence will in a sense like narrowed down its position. And uh, that is kind of uh, essential. And when you're doing that, I want you to notice how in a sense, every time you hit the sphere with one of these waves of energy, there is actually a sort of oscillatory oscillatory condition where in a session from where the energy is hitting the sphere, it bounces back to it. And that forms kind of like a point of view. It's kind of like a point of view that you're embedding in your experiential space. And that is defining a piece of information about the location of that sphere. And in aggregate, we kind of like aggregate all of these, you know, 
partial uh, views that actually build up to high confidence of a sphere in a particular location. But the essential kind of like artifact here is that you're going to have this coupling, like every single time you generate quote unquote a point of view, you're going to also be generating a harmonic resonant mode. And actually when you have something that is being seen from many points of view at once, it will be kind of stitching together a lot of different other regions of your experience. And you know, this is mind blowing, but in a sense, when you have like a highly coordinated experience, for example, an orgasm or like meditation, you know, peak or, you know, a fire meo DMT state or, um, you know, just like really, really kind of like, um, let's say, <laughs> actually, let's say like vomiting, <laughs> vomiting is a highly coordinated action actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean like in any of those situations, you will have kind of like a central happening, a central set of contractions that are like finely timed. They're like very properly timed so that the particular behavior that um, is required of them actually happens. And then you will have kind of the rest of your organism is like constantly sensing and it's bouncing off these waves of energy off of them and synchronizing and synchronizing and becoming coherent with it so that it actually becomes the oscillatory complement of it. And, uh, you know, actually that is kind of the problem that we are always kind of like trying to solve. Like, as I said, um, when you get absorbed into a hexagon deep in meditation, you're actually becoming the oscillatory complement of the hexagon. So to predict a hexagon perfectly, the thing that the nervous system is actually figuring out is how do I oscillate in such a way that its complement becomes the hexagon. So you're always all the time actually solving the oscillatory complement problem. Like if you see, uh, you know, somebody in, in the circus is doing some crazy, um, um, yeah, uh, uh, what is it called? Like, yeah, basically some like amazing gymnastics. Um, and you're thinking like, how do I interface with that person? How do I play with that person? Well, you're simulating how that person behaves as kind of like a collection of metronomes. And you're in a sense, figuring out how you can be the oscillatory complement of at least, you know, an act or, 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 or a sequence of the movements that that other person is making. So, um, solving the oscillatory complement problem is one, essentially one of these like massively, uh, one of these things from which you can benefit with a massively parallel self-organizing principle being instantiated. And I believe that's actually really key to like absolutely everything that we, we do is like we're constantly computing the oscillatory complements of inputs and of actions and of agents <laughs> even. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, more on that on another video. Um, I'll just like a kind of like wrap up a little bit, which is, um, uh, as I was saying, you can introspect, on how oscillatory complement stacking is the foundation of inner world building. You can experience these on various substances, on meditation, uh, even just with your imagination, if you, if you don't have aphantasia, for example. Um, and uh, you can even, for example, hallucinate what I call quilia critters, which is a particular like quasi agents or like little tiny kind of mini robots but they're actually, you know, conscious in a way, or like you're making them conscious, um, that in a sense are recruiting particular ways of contracting 
they're recruiting some kind of, you know, oscillatory modes of your experience in a coordinated fashion such that they can actually perform a certain action in a repeated fashion. And uh, then you can kind of like create swarms of them. You can copy them. And as soon as you have a swarm of Quilia critters, you will start to have the resonant modes of the entire collection of Quilia critters. Um, and that itself, you know, it's uh, computationally very significant that um, you're at, when you simulate, for example, how a colony behaves uh, in your mind, you're kind of actually also solving this crazy oscillatory complement problem, except that it is for every one of those critters relative to the rest of the collective. And you're finding some attractor that is kind of the oscillatory complement of the entire colony will be each of the uh, quillia critters. Um, so that's a tremendously computationally demanding problem, but that is solved really quickly. Like if you take DMT within a minute or two, you will solve this crazy, you know, very, very complicated uh, constraint satisfaction problems in this massively parallel way that will generate like crazy quillia critters, which yeah, they're finding their oscillatory complement. A anyway, all of this is, yeah, I mean, essentially something that I think that it runs so efficiently in our experience precisely because we're hooked up to the fields of physics and we're using this massive, you know, the massive native parallelism of reality itself and how it unfolds over time in order to solve these other, you know, computational problems. Um, and I think I'll, I'll actually end with, um, uh, okay, two more things. First, um, we can reinterpret actually the what happens on many different substances in terms of tweaking the self-organizing principles of your experience such that the balance of forces ends up being something different than it was before. Now, in particular, I would mention that something like DMT, I think of it quite a lot as a massive energizer, like essentially is like energizing uh, your entirety, the entirety of your experience which generates crazy non-linearities, which is essentially these like standing wave patterns that are self-reinforcing. And um, uh, with a bias towards like the high frequencies. Uh, so in a sense, um, a lot of what happens on, on DMT is kind of like very fast flickering, very fast resonant modes um, of your nervous system, do we, which as a consequence generate these kind of waves of energy that they collide against each other and then you get these attractor states, kind of these crazy geometrical patterns that are, in a sense, the energy sinks of that state. And yeah, if you look into them, you actually study them, you will see, yeah, there's a lot of physical behavior in terms of like, well, what the shape of these objects actually corresponds to is to an energy minimization process. So, for example, you will experience on DMT a lot of um, hyperbolic geometry, a lot of minimal surfaces. Yeah, all of that is like very reminiscent of energy minimization in physics. So, I mean, similar to, okay, like now we have hardware from Caltech that can solve with optics uh, the icing problem. And then the problem becomes, how do we translate, you know, the problems that we care about into an icing problem? I, I would say, you know, similarly, <laughs> the nervous system has this crazy capacity to generate these insane non-linearities in its, in its experiential field and then finding its local energy minima. Now, if you're able to cast 
a difficult computational problem into an energy minimization problem of that sort, <laughs> you may actually be able to use the visual field for crazy computation. And I mean, that's one of the things I'm very excited about, like, you know, the prospect in the next decade or so. It's uh, figuring out ways in which, yeah, actually a, a, a conscious uh, visual field or any other experiential field can be recruited for very exotic computation in a way that is like exceedingly efficient and also in a way that, yeah, nobody was suspecting before because people are not thinking about kind of these like enriched conception of intelligence and reads conception of uh, computation. So that's, uh, yeah, I find that uh, quite, quite exciting. Um, and uh, ketamine, here's the other, the other thing, uh, ketamine and dissociatives in general, I would broadly describe them as changing the wave propagation dynamics of energy in your nervous system. Um, essentially, it makes the wave propagation slower so it actually is a kind of like phase transition that makes everything move slower. Now, because a lot of our perception of the world is kind of this high level, you know, phenomena, this emergent pattern of all of these nonlinearities interacting with one another, if you slow down the wave propagation across the board, you get some really crazy emergent effects. But I think like the, the underlying, you know, the fundamental change in the substrate is very simple. It's actually just making the propagation of waves slower. And I think we can probably show this empirically. I mean, we can show, okay, how quickly information of, you know, stimulation of a certain sort takes to go from one part of the nervous system to the other on ketamine. And I would predict that it would go slower and actually would go slower, increasingly slower as a function of the dose. Okay. So, what this does as an emergent effect is that it makes it really difficult for each of the layers in the nested hierarchical structure of the nervous system to be synchronized with its surrounding layer. So essentially what this does is it disconnects your internal models from the input that they allegedly or presumably are trying to predict. And, uh, you know, this has this very, very strange effect where you can focus, for example, on the inner resonant modes of kind of like your deepest of your deep self, which is kind of like the most abstract and disembodied, compo disembodied component of your experience and be in a very blissful state. Even if there's like crazy music going on around or somebody is like shouting, there's like crazy things going on. If you're in a sufficiently dissociated state, you're not going to be phase locking. You're not going to be interlocking with those external metronomes. You can actually, in a sense, choose to not interlock with them. I mean, and this gives you, um, there's this kind of like corollary, which is, okay, so imagine you have like this dissonant input outside of you. How do you prevent it from getting translated into a dissonant internal state? And there's actually roughly two solutions to this. Number one, you can dissociate from it, which is kind of the, the ketamine route. <laughs> Essentially, you just prevent um, coupling between uh, sensory input and the resonant modes of your innermost state. Uh, that essentially kind of like, you become kind of like a cocoon. Essentially, the wave propagation dynamics of your innermost experience, um, they just don't resonate with the other layers. So they can kind of just exist on their own, you know? Um, 
But then the, uh, the second option is to predict the input perfectly. So people who do a lot of like noting meditation, for example, like very quickly noticing every tiny sensation arising and passing, well, they can become really good at essentially chopping down stimuli and predicting it really, really carefully and very precisely. And if you can do that, you can, in a sense, like cancel out preemptively what the input is going to be. So you have these completely different strategies and like, okay, like A, you become really good at predicting or B, you become really good at dissociating. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, ketamine would be the latter one, but there is an advantage to actually temporarily dissociating, which is it will, in a sense, lower the embodied constraints that usually um, we have learned, you know, like kind of like our muscle memory, you can kind of disembed yourself from those weights for a while and then reduce model complexity, sorry, model complexity internally. Um, so to a large extent, I would describe uh, something like ketamine uh, as uh, annealing technology targeted towards the innermost model complexity. That in a sense is like something that you might want to take if you need to reduce model complexity. Um, whereas like psychedelics across the board, they're more complicated, mostly because they don't necessarily dissociate you from the lower layers. Um, so actually you may end up kind of like dragging into those like crazy mystical states. Also all of your yeah human emotions and human needs and <laughs> all of that, which yeah can be pretty, pretty unpleasant. Um, now, the really crazy thing that happens is when you combine both dissociatives and psychedelics, I have a video and an article about what we call free willing hallucinations, which is essentially, yeah, states of consciousness that emerge from, let's say, 100 micrograms of LSD and 100 milligrams of ketamine taken at the same time, or take, you first take the LSD and a couple hours later the ketamine. But the point is that uh, peak effects kind of like happen in conjunction. And my interpretation there is that you are effectively getting the dissociation from the lower layers of the, you know, predictive coding uh, aspect of the nervous system. And yes, making like the energy propagation slower. And on top of that, <laughs> you're energizing the system, which is something that the psychedelic is going to be doing. So it's kind of like you become this cocoon these innermost kind of like experience dissociated from its environment, but then is like supercharged, like super energized. And uh, yeah, under those conditions, you can experience some of the absolutely most bizarre, crazy, intense and compelling nonlinearities in the, in the, in the, in the, in the nervous system. And uh, I really believe essentially that, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> as soon as more researchers, neuroscientists, people, uh, you know, like Steven Grosberg and so on, um, actually experiment in a very rigorous fashion with, yeah, straight up combining LSD and ketamine. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these kind of pieces of the puzzle will come together, <laughs> um, which, yeah, I mean, this video is kind of like an, an advance in that direction. But yeah, I mean, we're still pretty far from a complete understanding. Okay, so that is a... Uh, uh, LSD and ketamine, so like what happens with dissociatives and psychedelics. Um, the thing I will conclude with now, finally, is um, kind of like an implication of the fact that we represent the world with kind of these 
what we call a world sheet, this, uh, this uh, depth map. So um, that is the representation that is constantly being updated. And on DMT, essentially something that happens is that you experience so much you know, waves of energy that are generating these nonlinearities. And the nonlinearities are being generated faster than they are able to, in a sense, dissipate. Uh, so the homeostatic level of you know amount of qualia that you're experiencing ends up being higher so you end up having like these representations of the world that are like enriched with color and texture and movement and then the question is like okay like how do you fit all of that together into a unified experience that is elegant that is uh, minimizing its model complexity and the answer is you do a lot of stitching together and that's what uh, ultimately accounts for the creation of a hyperbolic world sheet you're stitching together all of these internal representations. As I mentioned, every time you have like a wave of energy hitting a surface, you actually have both kind of like that going on and the oscillatory complement of it, in a sense, as the observer, the thing that is keeping track of that point of view. I, I'm sure this doesn't make sense unless you, I don't know, recently have had like intense meditation or, or DMT experiences, but uh, I promise, I promise this makes sense. So, um, Essentially, the world sheet is kind of like the equilibrium of having all of those crazy oscillations uh, trying to be stitched together into a unified representation that makes sense, makes holistic sense. Um, now, you can do really crazy things when that happens. I mean, and this is not only DMT, also psychedelics more broadly. So, uh, for example, you can look at the mystical experiences uh, questionnaire, which is something that they often give to people right after a psychedelic experience. And, uh, you know, they say things such as like uh, item number three, for example, is uh, experience of oneness in relation to an inner world within. Apparently, that's like very common that you experience oneness with an inner world within. Well, from our point of view, that actually might have something to do with synchronization or coherence between layers of the mind that are usually don't talk to each other. So let's say if your cognition and your innermost kind of emotional self um, usually are kind of um, uh, oscillating in a way that are decoupled from one another on a psychedelic because it's in a sense reducing the threshold for coupling of any kinds of oscillations, you may actually experience the coupling between high-level cognition and your innermost emotions. And that might feel as something you might want to describe as the experience of oneness in relation to an inner world within. Um, but then there's like other things, for example, experiencing the fusion of your personal self into a larger whole. Yeah, well, likewise, your inner world simulation contains a homunculi. In other words, the representation of your body. But it's just a part of the representation. And it, it does have kind of this vibrational signature, um, <laughs> which we can leave it at that for the time being. But I mean, essentially, if that gets coupled with the vibrational signature of other aspects of your experience, you will experience local binding between your sense of self and other things with, for example, space or the, the, the walls around you or something more abstract, kind of like, the feeling of presence all around you. So that can happen. You can experience like crazy local binding connections between those components of your world simulation on, on psychedelics. Um, or for example, uh, experience of the insight that all is one. We've explained that before. Um, feeling that you experience eternity or infinity 
uh that's like also super crazy but like totally totally possible because um well I, i'm just gonna refer you to um the video on what is time or the article called the pseudo time arrow <laughs> um in qualia research institute um so yeah i mean basically the arrow of time is also something that is um can be influenced by annealing effects so you can actually experience a very simplified feeling of time or in an even more crazy fashion you can actually um create time loops which are experienced all at once it's like a very crazy thing you, you need to read the article to to really make sense of this but uh, essentially when you have that kind of experience it feels like you're eternally essentially stuck in that particular moment um, because the ending of that moment contains the seeds of its very beginning and there's like no way out of it i mean you're essentially in a uh, what's what described as a as a time loop uh, or also a limit cycle in dynamic systems and you're kind of like stuck in there anyway um, the mystical ex experiences question here um, makes a lot of sense if you think of your experience as essentially the result of you know an optical uh, massively parallel system and you make sense of psychedelics as energized non-linearities within that optical system and yeah, I mean, to some extent, <laughs> I expect what I just said to make very little sense to most people. But also, I strongly expect it to make a lot of sense in 10 or 20 years <laughs> when this is a much more concrete field of study. Hopefully, QRI will have uh, uh, participated in that process. Um, then also, I'll just uh, mention the Goldilocks zone of oneness. I mean, we talk about like how the feeling of everything being one is is a very natural kind of like feeling when you're in a very low entropy configuration of your consciousness where let's say like everything becomes just one point <laughs> to which you are synchronized in your in the center of your awareness now um if you have kind of this understanding that okay your experience is this massively parallel resonant state actually there is a very straightforward way in which all views of personal identity can be represented in it. So A, if you identify with all of the surfaces and the space being represented in your inner world simulation, maybe that would be kind of like equivalent to open individualism. You're kind of like identifying with consciousness itself, which we all have. So we are all the same consciousness in, in that sense. Or for example, you may identify with the homunculi within that world simulation, and that would be, for example, closed individualism, the standard belief that most people have, which is they start existing when they're born and they stop existing when they die. Or they can identify with essentially the zero time arrow, with kind of like the flickering quality of the experience. Um, and if they do that, then they would actually be kind of like identifying with empty individualism, that we are just one time slice. And, and the thing is, beliefs about personal identity are in this picture. Uh, something that corresponds to different configurations of the world sheet. Like if the world sheet is sending most of the attention towards like space itself, for example, okay, that would lend itself to open individualism. Or, you know, most people, their intuitive kind of like sense of self would be kind of like constantly generating these oscillatory complements with the homunculi. The homunculi, the inner sense of self as kind of the, uh, the lead or the nucleation for resonant modes. And that, yes, has a really strong closed individualist kind of a feel to it. And so, yeah, I mean, when you disable the self as kind of like this self-organizing principle, 
that interlocks and, and stitches together all of the oscillatory complements, um, you can create these crazy kind of like parallel realities that don't interact with one another um, parallel in a way, because ultimately, yeah, they're like globally bound, even though they might not be locally bound. And when you do that, um, yeah, the sense of self doesn't really exist. And so like representations for open and empty individualism become much more accessible. But I think that a very plausible kind of like way of um, developing compassion, not being so afraid of, of dying and, uh, and kind of like being in touch with one's emotions and so on would be to actually cultivate this feeling of the three views of personal identity being somewhat true simultaneously so that you identify with consciousness as a whole. So you are, you both feel a sense of responsibility towards like the well-being of other beings. Um, but also you stop being afraid of death because you identify with kind of a consciousness itself, but also you identify with yourself, with your own individual persona. So you actually, you know, kind of like take care of that timeline, which is also really important. You are the best steward of your timeline. And also that you care about each moment of experience, which the narrative self doesn't always necessarily care about. <laughs> uh, although that's a topic for another another video. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, just to, to conclude and wrap up, I very much believe that um, when we gain kind of world sheet manipulation technology, kind of like a very, very well uh, controlled DMT type of experience, we will be able, in a sense, to recruit the massively parallel self-organizing principles that our consciousness is instantiating in order to speed up particular computational uh, problems um, or sp speeding up the, the speed at which we find the solutions to computational problems. And yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be an ongoing thing for many decades to, to come that uh, we're going to find more and more ways in which, you know, neurons in the Petri dish or then the nervous system of a particular, you know, insect and then the nervous systems of humans are in a sense solving computational problems in a far more general way than you would expect if we were just thinking of them in terms of classical computing. And that is a really exciting journey and yeah, I mean, I'm very confident it's going to rock the way in which we make sense of intelligence, of computation and of what it is to be conscious. So with that, thank you very much. And uh, I'll talk to you another time on another topic. <laughs> Infinite bliss, everybody.